Hey, welcome everybody. This is the State of the CIO, where we talk with America's top IT leaders about the changing role of technology in the C-suite. I'm your host, Dan Kelly. Hey everyone, we've got an awesome guest with us today. His name is Jason James. He also goes by JJ, which we'll be referring to throughout the show. He's the CIO of NetHealth, uh, where he's been in that position since uh, July of 2019. Prior to NetHealth, uh, he actually was the CIO at Optima Healthcare and the VP of IT Operations at Earthlink. Hey, JJ, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Dan? I'm excellent. Thank you. A couple more points here. You got 20 years of experience in managing global SaaS solutions, strategy, security infrastructure, as well as DevOps. Uh, you've been pretty busy. And you're a frequent speaker, writer, and contribution uh, thought leader to multiple publications. Is that accurate, JJ? Yeah, that's accurate. It, uh, as I tell people, if I'm not uh, dealing with technology, I'm speaking about technology, I'm writing about technology, or I'm telling others about technology. So it definitely keeps me busy. That's excellent. So tell me a little bit about why you got into the CIO role, what interests you about IT, and, and maybe just a little bit more about yourself on a personal level. I have always been in IT. Every job I've ever had, even as a teenager, has had roots in IT. I come from a very a long line of entrepreneurs. And so when I was 15 years old, instead of mowing grass or working in grocery stores, I was laying out Lantastic Networks and doing PC upgrades. And so that sort of hit. And from there, I moved into other roles within IT. At one point, I ran a value-added reseller. I've worked for startups. I've worked for publicly traded companies. I've worked for private organizations, PE-backed organizations. And so you know, someone asked me the other day, if you weren't doing this, what would you do? And I was like, I don't know, maybe be a writer or a chef or something. But obviously, you know, uh, the tech bug bit me early on and it's been holding on ever since. Right. And, you know, throughout this this episode, we're going to talk about the, you know, the concepts of of the, your IT priorities, your digital transformation, et cetera. But this is uh, like I shared with you at the beginning prior to us recording. This is actually our first episode in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so I would be very interested to understand um, how NetHealth is is handling that, et cetera. I reflect on the concept of remote working and how different generations handle it uh, differently, perhaps, is the best way of saying it, right? I'm wondering maybe if, if we could just start by talking about you know the concept of remote working, how you have seen it evolve over the, maybe the last five to 10 years, and then what you're doing right now, specifically for your team. Sure. And so let's talk about the landscape prior to COVID-19, right? And so for, I, I've been fortunate enough that I've led global operations and I've had teams all over the world and, you know, teams throughout the United States. And so for me, it was nothing new in terms of allowing remote connectivity for knowledge workers. Not everybody else has that ability. You know, uh, right now we can't have sanitation workers, you know, working from home. You know, we really need those people. Same with grocery store employees. But, you know, being, you know, on the cutting edge of IT for so long, we've been building out teams that could enable their work from anywhere. And it wasn't to prepare for global pandemic. Make no mistake, those organizations that say, they had prepared for this. They had a line in their business continuity plan where they may have mentioned global pandemic. When they did business continuity planning or disaster recovery, most people never foresee could foresee that 
no one could come into an office, right? They would all be working from home. And, you know, if I use NetHealth for an example, we were able to pivot quickly. So we're in our second week of everyone working remotely, uh, which has been great. We've been utilizing cutting edge technology that luckily we already had in place. So people could take calls from their home. They could collaborate with video from their home. They could securely access environments. So the idea of an office being an anchor wasn't there for us, which was great. For, for a long time now, probably a year or two, I've been saying that work is no longer a place, but a thing. And boy, are we proving that now? Not just us, but others. I mean, you know, if you look at Microsoft Teams, 12 million people enrolled last week. 12 million. Just that much of an increase. If you look at the utilization of Zoom worldwide, what we're seeing right now is going to have long and lasting implications far beyond when we return to the office, so to speak. And so, I foresee large swaths of the organization that never return to an office Monday through Friday, nine to five. It's just not going to happen. Once people realize there are a lot of knowledge workers that can actually do their job from anywhere, it will fundamentally shift the workforce in ways we didn't really foresee. You know, for, for, for me, I had been saying for a long time that we needed to enable workers to securely work from anywhere. That wasn't because I foresaw a global pandemic. I foresaw a need of flexibility in people's lives. That need for work-life harmony where they could balance their job, but also balance their family. You know, some days the job wins out, some days your family wins out. It's not a work-life balance, but a work-life harmony. But what we're seeing now is we're actually creating the next generation of remote workers. How many millions of kids are logging in to do their lessons via Zoom right now? It's millions. And it's not just in the United States. You know, we've got India right now that's gone uh, into a state place order for three weeks as an entire country. You're talking about, was that 1.4, 1.6 billion people? And uh, make no mistake, there'll be giant swaths of the economies of the world that cannot do their job remotely. It just doesn't support that. But those that can will forever be altered in how they work, where they work, to the point that we'll continuously see a decline in commercial real estate. That commercial real estate uh, that will be their campuses will have to be transformed to be this showcase to their employees and clients. But there'll be a large swath that decide, you know, I can effectively work from home. I'm not sitting in an hour or two hour commute every day. It's really insightful. Yeah, we this work-life balance concept, I always thought that was the biggest farce. That's why I was smiling over here as you're talking about that, because there's no, there's no balance. There's no balance. You call it harmony. I call it integration. It all means the same. Yeah. Trying to find what fits. And what we're realizing what fits now is that we talked about generations or we'll talk about generations in the workplace. This is the first time ever we've got five generations in the workplace. We've got everything from uh, boomers and traditionals, which is even older than them, or maybe the greatest generation, however you want to coin them, and Generation X and millennials. Well, now we've got Generation Z in the workforce. And the, the younger employees, of course, are a lot more adapted to working in a remote setting. But again, if we go back to the analogy with the, all the school children connecting and doing their lessons via Zoom, that Generation Z or whatever 
generation you want to call them, they will be way more equipped to handle a remote collaborative platform than any generation before them. Now, with that said, we also, as leaders, we have to take into consideration that, you know, we've got introverts and we've got extroverts and right in the middle is that ambivert. And so some people still need that connectivity. And so what we have to do, regardless of location, we have to focus on culture. And, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, you know, it's hard to create culture online. I'm like, nonsense. If you look at every social media group, whether you're subscribing to, you know, a cat channel or, you know, a barbecue channel, this idea is people congregate around ideas and build that culture, whether they're remote or in person. I'm not saying that remote replaces the human experience and the face-to-face connectivity. You know, as we go through this, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was like, outside of your immediate family, if you've had a stay-at-home order for a few weeks, do you even remember the last person you hugged, right? Human connectivity is important. And so right now, because we don't have it, we have to focus on these tools in order to collaborate and reach out to others, not only our coworkers, but our friends and family. You know, if I think about my own family, how it's been impacted, my mother is in assisted living. And so she got the order and nationally, they got the order a week ago that uh, there were no outside visitors. Less than a week ago, they got the order that they were confined to their rooms. And so right now we're blessed that she can use FaceTime and she knows how to use FaceTime and we can communicate and she can see her granddaughter and she can see us. But You know, I thought about my own friends and how we had what we call our own family dinner. We did it via Zoom on Sunday. And so we wanted to be around and we wanted to share that experience and we wanted to have that connectivity. What we're seeing is this humanization of our enterprise collaboration tools being used in real life that, I don't know, maybe Zoom didn't think about. Maybe Teams didn't think about. Maybe WebEx didn't think about. But that's how they're being adapted. You know, we're taking what was an enterprise class service and applying it to the most fundamental basic part of human life, which is reaching out to our loved one and just checking on them and seeing how they're doing. That's a wonderful example of of actually sharing a family dinner via Zoom. I never thought about that. You just gave me an idea now. But (laughs) explain to me how the maybe the change management curve has gone um, and if you could give some some key pointers, perhaps for other CIOs or IT leaders in your space, you know, in, in your position, or maybe they're not as as far ahead of on the curve as, as you, right? As far as pushing out this this technology, maybe maybe some key lesson learned uh, there. Well, I think if if they weren't close, I think what they had to do was adapt quickly. I've heard stories of CIOs running out to Best Buy and Costco, buying up what inventory they had left of laptops, trying to get their workforce ready. I've heard awful stories of organizations requiring their, their workers to pick up their desktop and go home. We're fortunate we're not in that space. What we are and what we've been able to do is pivot quickly because we could foresee the coming need of a remote workforce. Organizations also have to realize, let's just take out global pandemic. You know, it's everything, it's, it's what everybody's talking about, but let's talk about talent management and how that moves into play. As you've got rising salaries in San Francisco and Atlanta and Austin and other areas in New York is that 
organizations that are smart about it are going to look nationwide. There is a, an immense talent pool in Rochester, New York, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Mobile, Alabama. And this idea is leaders need to start looking for talent wherever they lie. If you are a infrastructure engineer in Birmingham, Alabama, making $100,000 a year, that role may be twenty to 50000 cheaper than Atlanta and 100000 cheaper than San Francisco, you're still going to get really great talent. What you also may find is that talent will stay a lot longer because the cost of living implications in their own hometowns is significantly cheaper. This idea is going out and not looking offshore, not looking near shore, but looking everywhere trying to find the best talent at the most affordable rate and hopefully that you can retain for a while. Because if you look at, let's talk briefly about digital transformation, your average digital transformation project takes 18 to 36 months. Losing top talent in the midst of that will make you go over budget and go beyond schedule. And so the more you can retain talent wherever they're at, the more likely you are to be more successful in delivering on that digital transformation. That's a great point. It's really a retention play, just providing these tools. I, talk to me a little bit about some other collaboration tools you might be using that have been really successful for, for you. Let me talk about maybe not myself or my organization, but what we see within the ecosystem far beyond my own organization. So if you look at how people, we talked about Zoom, you know, a lot of people using that effectively. The uh, Teams, we talked about, they had a massive increase in one one week alone. Slack, you know, the way people are using Slack to create channels to share what we're seeing, whether it be something like Zoom or Slack or Teams, is the fact is people are moving beyond email, which is an asynchronous communication. Asynchronous meaning, you know, I send out an email, I, I hope somebody responds, maybe they respond, maybe they see it, maybe they don't, but it's not in real time. When we look at real-time collaborative tools like you and I are using now to conduct this podcast is the fact is it's instantaneous, but also with it being instantaneous, it has another sort of interesting cultural adaptation because we can also break into channels or groups and talk about something that may be not work-related. And that's important right now. So if we, again, let's go back what everybody's got on their mind right now with uh, COVID-19 is that a lot of these tools are being used to promote culture, promote connectivity, and create this virtual water cooler. This idea that, hey, Dan, why don't we talk about, you know, sports? Can't watch them on TV. First time in history we've, you know, faced a crisis and we can't turn to sports but maybe we can share some clips and maybe we can share some ideas or, you know, what's the first sporting event you're going to watch when we're, we're past this. And what we're doing is we're having a break from crisis to focus on frivolity, if you will, this idea that frivolity is needed. You know, people can talk about, you know, productivity and everything all day, but I'm, I'm going to talk about the need that we have to have these breaks. We have to have a break from crisis for our own mental health. And so as leaders, we need to start using these solutions to not only make our teams more productive, but inject that bit of frivolity. You know, I joked in an article the other day that my job as CIO is to, you know, uh, focus on the tech enablement of the business, 
digital transformation and to deliver the freshest memes to my employees, right? But it's this idea is that it's important for us as leaders to allow that connectivity and realize that connectivity won't always be about work. And it sounds like you publicly support that inside your organization, right? As far as using the tools for you know, for personal means. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've created channels within our tools that we use that, you know, people can, you know, share recipes or what they're cooking. And, you know, now more than ever, that's needed. Now, now we're still jumping in on projects. We're still delivering on our commitments. Make no mistake about that. We're there to focus on the needs of our clients first. But as a leader, I'm also going to protect and focus on the needs of my employees. I think it's a very, very valuable message that everyone will be shaking their head up and down right now because of the mental health aspects of this whole thing. And exactly, it gives us an opportunity just to reset what the norm is, right? Not nine to five heads down into a keyboard, right? But rather an integration. And it builds culture because when you think about it, so I I work for an organization headquartered in Pittsburgh. I don't live in Pittsburgh. I live in Atlanta. And so I've got teams throughout the United States. We have a fairly large even prior to this, a fairly large remote workforce. Now we have an entire remote workforce. And so how I connect with them is, as leaders, you don't ha always have to be right, but you have to be seen and you have to be present. And so even if we can't be there in person, we can still be present. We can make sure that they have someone that they can connect with that understands they're all going through a lot right now. And they're going through a lot because their work has been disrupted and they are doing an amazing job of managing that disruption in an incredibly positive way. But also at the same time, their home life has been incredibly disruptive. And so it's important that um, we understand that, you know, the soft skill, you know, for years, leaders have been talking about the need for emotional intelligence and soft skill. The one soft skill every leader needs right now is flexibility. Things aren't going to go right. You and I get in on this podcast for whatever upstream reason issue we had, there was no audio for a while. And, you know, we just have to realize stuff's going to happen. We have to adapt. What had been working perfectly may not. You know, if you look at what's happening in Europe, you know, the EU asked Netflix to stop streaming HD because their their networks were buckling under the just enormity of the traffic. And so, you know, with a lot of organizations, we have to realize uh, as leaders of those organizations, we have to have flexibility. There'll be times when somebody's kid walks in on a web conference, we've got employees within organizations that they don't have. You know, you and I are fortunate. We have a dedicated space to record this. Not a lot of organizations, not a lot of people do. And so, uh, you know, they've got makeshift work from homes from their couch or their back deck or, or their kitchen table. And so um, we got pets walking through the background all the time. You know, it's just, <laughs> hey, folks, you got to be flexible. You've got to learn that rigidity will will be our downfall. And so uh, I encourage all leaders out there to um, think about your own people. Allowing that, though, as a social norm during this time, I think like publicly stating that with your team, I think is really impactful, right? Like really powerful. I, I've shared it not only with our organization, but our executive leadership that the need for flexibility is the soft skill we all have to have right now.
Right. Yeah. Yeah. As an example, my executive assistant and I, she's got a seven-year-old. I have a five-year-old. And every once in a while, we need to put the, the meeting on pause because you'll see them walk in the background or whatever. For whatever reason, they didn't care about the closed door. You know, just <laughs> Oh, yeah. I have, a, yeah. I have a 15-month-old at home. And so sometimes she'll, she'll be right outside the door and just bang on it and just start <laughs> screaming, right? She can barely talk now. And she's like, Dada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing matters but them. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no, the big boss is calling. I gotta go, folks. So. <laughs> That's right. You know, since since we have we have a lot of CIOs, IT directors, VP IT, et cetera, you know, we also have some people that are starting out in their, you know, their IT career here. I'd like to address two topics. Um, one is a tactical question, the other is more of um, more of an open-ended. I'll start with a tactical one first. With all these collaboration tools and let's call it more endpoints, you know, people scattered out everywhere. Have you needed to make any changes from a security perspective? Obviously, you've got more kind of open holes in the system, if you will, um, the more people you have. So talk to me maybe a little bit about that, how you approach this. We were fortunate in in the sense that we weren't buying up laptops at Costco, right? We weren't allowing people to connect with whatever machine they had. They had dedicated devices and those dedicated devices were encrypted. Those dedicated devices are using encrypted tools to connect with. Data, especially PHI, was protected from wherever it's at, right? Not only encrypted arrest, but encrypted in transit. And so we were fortunate in that sense that we could pivot and they could securely access data. That may not be true with all organizations out there. And so what they have to realize is that it becomes even more crucial. And so, you know, you've got data trying to be accessed from probably not the most secured environments in many organizations. And so what they need to look at is really um, critical data. How is it protected? Is it being encrypted? How are they coming across? Audit. Audits are, are more critical now than ever. What's being looked at? Who's looking at it? When is it being looked at? And I mentioned time frame because time frames are skewed. I, I joke that I joked with somebody else earlier that three or four weeks from now, uh, my goatee will turn into a beard and I'll have like the craziest hairdo. I'll look like, you know, Robin Williams character in Jumanji when he walks out and goes, what year is it? You know, that's going to, that's going <laughs> to be me in like two weeks. But so people aren't working traditional hours anymore because of the flexibility uh, needed. And then, you know, you've got so many kids at home and I've heard about organizations where people are shifting different workloads because they're trying to homeschool their kids and so they're coming on later at night. And so tools that you were using to determine when data was accessed by time of day may need to be adjusted. You know, if, if you have a kind of organization where you're monitoring traffic and you don't expect traffic at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, but now you have a tremendous amount of it, you need to actually investigate. But what you may find is that people have shifted their work hours. They mean a lot less than they used to because of everything people are trying to get done. Uh, I think when you when you look at even long term, as we as we shift back to normalcy, again, let's go back to the fact is people are going to start working more remotely than ever before, even beyond this current crisis. And so leaders within organizations need to look at, number one, making sure that systems accessing their data is highly secured. It's encrypted. The data that they're accessing is encrypted at rest and in transit. Uh, and that you're using tools to really monitor and protect data, no matter where it's at. 
security always comes up as one of the key challenges um, within your organization, right? It's just always top of mind, as it should be, especially in your industry, being in healthcare, right? So I guess, to, you know, to your point, you were more prepared than, let's call it, manufacturing industry, purely based on regulation alone. You know, what, what other challenges may you, you may be facing right now, just as a company or within your industry? Healthcare, of course, is being attacked at an alarming rate. But cybercrime as as a global industry is the most profitable industry in the world. Six trillion dollars globally. Okay. To give you some kind of comparison, the bailout that Congress just passed last night was two trillion to support the entire US economy, two trillion. The combined impact of drug illegal drug sales in the entire world is less than cybercrime. Crime pays. And so what they're doing right now are targeting high, high pain point environments. So hackers don't stop. You know, there's there's a quote, never can you remember the person, but basically don't miss uh, a good crisis. Well, they're not missing this crisis. There was an attack on uh, Health and Human Services um, last Sunday, a cyber attack. There was a organization in the Czech Republic that actually... Uh, is working to produce a COVID-19 vaccine, and they got hit with ransomware. Threat actors are going to use this crisis to actively target not only healthcare, but also individuals in any industry. You know, I've, I've looked at my own personal email and the number of just nefarious criminal type phishing attacks and things have increased. Somebody had actually taken the old Nigerian wire transfer scam and rewritten it to be a whole COVID-19 scam. So what's old is new again. And so the threat actors are using it to target individuals. And so uh, everybody needs to be on a heightened sense of awareness. I know that's something with our own organization. We do a very good job of uh, continuous education for security. But every listener out there needs to be aware that you're being targeted. A $6 trillion industry doesn't get wealthy just on healthcare alone. They're targeting utilities. They're targeting places that um, can't go down. And um, they want that disruption. To quote the line from one of the Batman movies, some people just want to watch the world burn. And uh, we've got to be mindful of trying to stop that. Thinking about a tactical perspective here, obviously you guys were well prepared, but do you ever run, like just to give some some key uh, suggestions for people, do you ever run like, a, example, a phishing campaign or anything of that where you... I do it all the time. And do you find that highly effective? We do find it highly effective, but we, we have sort of a stick and carrot methodology. I, I don't disclose which tools we use, but we do do that. And those that fail uh, actually have to undergo training sessions. And those failures get shared not only with myself, but get shared with the CEO. And make no mistake, anyone that fails a test, whether they're an executive or not, has to undergo retraining. We also do um, training throughout the year. We want to make it not only topical to what could affect our industry, but what could affect affect or infect, right, you know, depending on what threats out there, uh, the individual. So we talk about everything from uh, crypto jacking to, uh, you know, SIM attacks to phishing to spear phishing to ran ransomware to wire transfer scams. 
the more educated you can make your workforce, the better it is. Security is not just IT or the CISO's job. Security is everyone's job. And so it's important that you you have people educated as possible. Uh, of course, with that, you have to build a comprehensive multi-layer of security. But at the same time, our greatest asset, along with uh, our greatest weakness within any organization is people. Right. This is a really important topic. I mean, not just as a result of today, but you know, for, for the industry as a whole. I want to shift gears just very quickly. Um, since we're coming to the end of the episode, I, I wanted to just ask a broad question that I ask every individual that has had a successful career, which is everyone that we speak with um, within this episode. If you had to talk to yourself at the beginning of your career, yeah, and give yourself some advice on things to do, things not to do, maybe a little bit of direction. And so you know where I'm going with this, really talking to those people maybe earlier in their career. What would that guidance be? Let them understand that when we're building out solutions, when we're building out solutions for a problem, they're not always tech driven. As CIO, you're delivering on technology, but you're empowering people. The end of the day, the best CIOs are amazing therapists. You know, tell me about your problem. What's the root cause of it? So spending time with people and understanding what they need is, it, first of all, it's, it's difficult. You know, I can say we're, we're armchair therapists, so to speak, but it is true. And so we need to get to the root of the solution and not always will technology solve those issues. Processes scale, people don't. And so we can bring processes that scale. We can, we can attempt to bring technology solutions, but it's all for humans, at least at this point. You know, I can foresee in the next you know, two years a percentage of my workforce being non-human through RPA and other forms of automation. But even with that, we're still building solutions for humans. We need to take time to understand who they are, what they need, not just what the requirements are. You know, we can all look at requirements on the sheet, but, you know, not always do people capture everything we need. And so we need to we need to be there. It goes without saying that a CIO is is a business leader first and a technologist second. I believe in a very strong need that all CIOs do have to be strong technologists. I've seen CIOs that got promoted uh, from other organizations and did not have the technical acumen and as a result couldn't deliver. For a long time, there had been this misunderstanding that, you know, in order to be a really good CIO, you didn't need to know the technology. You just needed to be a good leader. And I think you, you do absolutely have to be a great leader. But at the same time, having that technical acumen makes you a lot more successful in that role. That's really important. I, I mean, what you're just talking about is key aspects of leadership, right? And it's um, humanizing IT. Is that fair? No, it's very fair. We talk about this actually a lot with other leaders specifically. And, you know, in the IT sourcing, IT procurement world, which, which we're in, you know, um, that's quite frankly what we have to do too. translate the business what the business needs, even though they're not actually saying it correctly, maybe translating what, the, you know, helping them understand what they need versus uh, just talking about one specific tool and application. Well, you said something important that we need to talk about for a second is that sometimes they don't know what they need. Yeah. 
they, they know what their problem is. They don't necessarily know what the solution is. So we have to go back upstream and understand not only the problem, but the root of the problem. All technology is enabled for human consumption at this point. You know, of course, you've got, you know, machine to machine learning and machine to machine systems. But the final output is for human consumption. Uh, whether you build a solution that produces a donut or you build a solution that creates a health record, at the end of the day, it's for human consumption. And understanding humans, you know, has been vitally important to me. My, I minored, my undergrad minor was in anthropology and it was the study of, uh, I found it, by the way, by far more impactful than any of my tech classes. And that was the idea of how do we understand the tools that humans are using and why they use them and how they can be applied. And so um, not only great CIOs therapists, they're also really great anthropologists. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> that's the one liner of the show right there. <laughs> that's, that's great. That could be the headline. Of the show, right? yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. As you promote it, that's what it Yeah, was. yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about this because that, that approach naturally kills a lot of technical debt too, right? Because then you don't just have a bunch of point solutions everywhere, right? And because you're saying, I got to have this one specific tool because I saw it on some webinar or something, but rather have a customer journey attached to every specific tool that you're building, right? I think with that, our customer journey also has to begin at the user journey. You know, often when we talk about the customer journey, we're talking about externally facing. But what about internally facing? This idea of, you know, if you're bringing in a tool, how does it interconnect with the other tools within your organization? So as we, as organizations become more data-driven, you need tools that can collaborate and transfer and uh, interconnect in an interoperable uh, way between systems in order to get the best results. No more important than the healthcare industry, hence what you're in. So I imagine you have a few things working on that topic. Yeah, well, you know, if you think I've been talking about interoperability for a while as a CIO, but let's talk about it from a patient perspective, right? We're all patients. And so the idea of why interoperability is needed is that idea is your records can flow from system to system, provider to provider to provide you with the best patient experience, right? And so if I am a patient, and I'll just tell you, I'm a patient that hates needles. And so if I go from one healthcare provider to another doctor and I've done a similar test, I don't want to have to retake that test. And so um, let's not even talk about just the cost differences, right? You know, if you're on a health savings plan, you're getting hit each time. I mean, even if you're not, somebody's getting hit each time. And that idea of, of a, a record flowing from one provider and one system into another is incredibly important just to improve the patient experience, right? You know, for all, all the times we've been CIOs, we've talked about the user experience, but let's talk about the patient experience because that impacts all of us. And so as patients, it's in our best interest that our information can securely and safely flow between providers and between systems in order for us to get the best care. How soon are we uh, to achieving that, you think, within the industry? I think you see a lot of it occurring now. There's different organizations that are effectively doing it. There's not a single system or single system of record 
for Americans, you know, the Chinese have a, a single basically QR code that contains their information. We don't have that. I'm not saying we should get to that. But what we need is that ability of whatever records tied to you, Dan, that it has that ability to flow between systems securely, to be shared between systems securely. So you're not taking unnecessary tests. Uh, you're not uh, wasting your time, and that system of records, so to speak, provides enough healthcare points between physicians and between treatment centers that you get better outcomes. Without ten pages of uh, legal documents to share records between two different organizations, right? Yeah, <laughs> just I just went through this, so that's why it's it's kind of top of mind. Absolutely, and it affects all of us, right? And that that's that's why there's this need for interoperability. And again, my message comes from not as being CIO, but as being a patient like every one of us. Well, that's an incredibly important perspective based on your role in, in the industry. That's enlightening, if nothing else. Well, JJ, I know our audience is going to take a ton of thoughts and actionable insights from this episode. So thank you. Are there any final thoughts you want to share before we end? I want to offer everyone a sense of hope, right? You know, right now we're all seemingly battered. Our, our, our norm is no longer norm. And what norm will be in the near future will look very different than it did last year. But I encourage all leaders to realize they have a position in which to have a venue offer this idea of, of stability and reassurance to their people. You know, we have a job as leaders to understand that it is our job to helm the ship during rough storms. I'm encouraged we will get through this. You know, we've gotten through many a disaster as leaders in throughout part of history. This is very different than most of us have faced. There's not to my knowledge, any leader that's still around since the 1918 flu epidemic, but we will get through this. And as a result, there'll be innovation that comes about, uh, whether it's, you know, pandemic reduction or improved remote connectivity or virtual classrooms for students. But there's this point of inflection where once we can focus on crisis containment and the protection of human life, that innovation will occur that will hopefully reduce the risk of this in the future. And I encourage everybody, you're all struggling. Don't hesitate from a mental health perspective to reach out to your own network of, of leaders. And, you know, if you need that person, just say, hey, look, I'm having a rough time. I need some help. Don't hesitate. We're all going through something. And there's somebody out there that can offer that assurance and guidance. And if you don't have it, I'm here. That's wonderful. Thank you, JJ, for those parting thoughts. There you have it, everyone. Jason James, CIO of NetHealth. Thank you very much, JJ, for your time. Thanks, Dan. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, let me know. Send me a personal email to dan at thenegotiator.guru. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's conversation, please share this podcast with one person you think who would enjoy it. For show notes, episodes, and more, please visit thenegotiator.guru. Look forward to hearing from everyone soon. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.